It's Friday, October 12th. I'm Colin Quinn and welcome to The Readout. This week we're talking about two big stories. One has the potential to change US relations with one of its key allies and the other could change literally the whole world as we know it. So first to the case of Jamal Khashoggi, the Saudi dissident and Washington Post columnist who's been missing since last week when he was seen entering the Saudi consulate in Istanbul. Various media reports have suggested that Khashoggi met a gruesome end in that consulate, with the finger pointing squarely at Saudi Arabia and its much-fetted crown prince Mohammed bin Salman. The story has consumed Washington in the past week and threatens to force a reckoning in the US-Saudi relationship. President Trump, wary of the dollar value of the Saudi alliance, has been circumspect so far. I would not be in favor of stopping a country from spending $110 billion, which is an all-time record, and letting Russia have that money and letting China have that money, because all they're going to do is say, that's okay, we'll buy it from Russia, we'll buy it from China. So what good does that do us? There are other things we can do. The US Congress, on the other hand, has been in rare bipartisan form, invoking the Global Magnitsky Act, a law that means the president has 120 days to decide whether to place sanctions on individuals involved in Khashoggi's alleged killing. This week, we're joined by the head of CSIS's Middle East program, John Alterman. We begin with whether this episode will change how the US approaches Saudi Arabia. People in Washington who want to take pot shots at the Saudis for any number of reasons. And you have people who were concerned about women's rights in Saudi Arabia and people who were concerned about religious freedom in Saudi Arabia and people who were concerned about uh, freedom of speech in Saudi Arabia and other human rights and people who were concerned and said the Saudi government we still think was involved supporting 9-11. Any number of groups have a chip on their shoulder about Saudi Arabia and the apparent death of Jamal Khashoggi gives all of those groups something to rally around. One of the things that makes this significantly worse is that the Saudis really haven't had a convincing answer. Their, their initial response was, well, he left the consulate, but there's no proof of that whatsoever. And more and more incriminating evidence keeps coming out, and there's no counter-narrative. I think at some point there will be some sort of Saudi explanation. I think that will at least give people something to work with. But at this point, everybody is just having their minds wander and it gets more and more macabre. And there's nothing to offset this sort of tumbling down into a strange set of speculations. The president has, has mentioned um, kind of in passing he himself has not really had too much of a, an official statement on this yet, but that you know, due to the big arms deal that the U.S. and Saudi Arabia agreed, that you know he wouldn't want to throw that up in smoke, and so probably wouldn't want to do things like what the senator asking for, and some senators are asking for, which is blocking arms sales, things like that. Um, do you expect any of those things to be in jeopardy? Yeah, there is going to be a response. There'll be a congressional response. There'll be a public response. We've already seen a number of prominent business people who stood to, to make millions and millions of dollars in business in Saudi Arabia, saying they're not going to a big finance conference in Saudi Arabia next week. Uh, there will be an impact. And the business community is going to, to be less willing to engage with Saudi Arabia because they're concerned about predictability and rule of law. 
And when you seem to have an extrajudicial killing for political reasons, that suggests that maybe rule of law doesn't work the way you'd want to in a business world. But you know, I think it's, it's a false dichotomy to say our options are to do absolutely nothing or to do absolutely everything. And the reality is the US government will do something, I think, um, some of which will be private and some of which will be public. And it's going to require everybody in the government getting on the same page and the president deciding what the, the message will be. Um, and frankly, that requires a lot of deliberation and calibration, which the president has not shown himself uh, very interested in engaging with. But it does require all of the assets that we have with Saudi Arabia to, to be considered. And, and, you know, when you think about it, we have an incredibly complex relationship with Saudi Arabia. We have a military relationship. We have a broader security relationship, an intelligence relationship, a financial relationship, a commercial relationship. Um, there are cultural ties. There are lots of Saudi students in the United States. I mean, this is not a small and irrelevant country where you can just brush it off. Anything we do with Saudi Arabia will have ripple effects. Anything Saudi Arabia does with us has ripple effects. And you have to consider carefully what is your desired outcome and what actions get you there. The U.S. has a lot of things it wants to do with Saudi Arabia. The U.S. also objects to a lot of things Saudi Arabia has done. This has always been sort of at the core of the relationship. And I think if the Saudi role is as has been widely reported, this will change the balance of exactly where the U.S.-Saudi relationship is. And is there any kind of U.S. angle in this in that people are saying or, or there's reports that the reason why something like this, if, if it did occur and, and it has occurred in the way that it's been reported, um, is due to maybe a more emboldened Saudi Arabia that they know they've got the backing of the U.S. and so have a little more of a freer reign in, in what they can get away with? Look, the most important American angle is I couldn't name a lot of experts on Saudi Arabia in the United States who didn't know Jamal Khashoggi. I think a lot of people in the, the policy world had encountered Jamal Khashoggi. He was a columnist for the Washington Post. He was in many ways the most articulate, independent Saudi talking about things that the world cares about in Saudi Arabia. Um, that makes it an American issue. The fact that he was living in McLean makes it an American issue. The fact he had a, a periodic column in the Washington Post makes it an American issue. I don't know what the calculus may have been on the Saudi side. It, we really don't know anything about what went on on the Saudi side. But if one thought that this would pass unnoticed in the United States, I think that's a real misjudging of the role that Jamal Khashoggi played in helping people around the world understand what was happening in Saudi Arabia. In my conversations with Jamal Khashoggi, he wasn't an opponent of the government. He certainly wasn't an opponent of the monarchy. When we spoke um, shortly after he came to the United States, about 18 months ago, a little less, it felt to me like he thought the crown prince had it about 90% right. He said the change is necessary. He's taken on 
all of these pillars of the establishment who have been holding Saudi Arabia back, the religious establishment and this commercial elite and this overwhelmingly large royal family of too many people who aren't contributing. He thought that was terrific. He thought 10% deviation was really what, what the country needed. And it's chilling when being 90% supportive of the leadership is insufficient enough to get you in the kind of trouble that Jamal Khashoggi seemed to have fallen into. And that was CSIS's Middle East program director, John Alterman. And now we're moving from two countries to, well, every country. Earlier this week, the IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, released its report warning that the Earth could warm to the crucial level of 1.5 degrees Celsius over pre-industrial levels as soon as 2030. This could lead to catastrophic ocean rises, ice cap melts, and almost all of the world's coral reefs dying. It's a dire wake-up call, but is anyone listening? I spoke to Sarah Ladislaw, the head of our energy program, to find out how scared should we be. I think for the people who think about these reports and the function of these reports, they're meant to inform you. Um, There is actually a a pretty... um, uh, developed debate about whether it's useful to scare you. Uh, you know, you as the public uh, or you as policymakers tend to find that if if you feel frightened about the future, you're not going to really want to engage in it, right? So I don't think the purpose of this report is to scare anybody. I think it is to motivate um, people to understand that um, that climate change is. Uh, I think one of the key messages here is that. You know, climate change, the kind of impacts that we see from a warming world, uh, those are not hypothetical things anymore. They're things we see all around us. And so different from reports that the IPCC has put out, you know, several years ago, um, this is not a theoretical exercise. It is something that um, we see happening and is starting to shape our view of how resilient we are going to be to fill in the blank, you know, hurricanes, rising sea levels, changing um, uh, precipitation patterns that, you know, impact agriculture, whole bunches of different things. The This particular IPCC report is geared towards asking the question, can we get to a world where we can plausibly limit global average temperature rise to one and a half degrees. And I think that it also puts out there what the consequences are of us not reaching that. The big deal about climate change, period, has always been that the worse you let warming get, the more you're going to have those impacts and people's responses, society's responses to those impacts overwhelm government capacity to handle it. So if you think that migration issues in Europe were not handled particularly well over the last several years, those are the kinds of impacts and things that get exacerbated by climate change and those impacts and and only worse over time. And when they don't when they're not a once every 50 years event, they're once every 10 years or once every five years kinds of events. Governments just don't, they can't handle it anymore. So the purpose of the report is to try and say, this is what the future looks like. This is what we need to do to change. Can we do that? 
And I want to get into the international aspect of that in a second, but let's maybe focus on the US uh, for the minute. It is hard to talk about these things without talking about politics. We have a president who does not seem to agree with the science or, or to go along with the idea of man-made uh, climate change. And uh, there's been a few steps backwards taken by this administration, pulling out of Paris uh, Climate Accord being probably the, the most high profile. Of those steps, what, what worries you the most? And um, is the US as a leader and as a, as a big contributor to greenhouse gas itself, uh, is it running out of time to do anything? It's a really interesting question. So the Trump administration um, has uh, certainly, as you say, you know, does not think about climate change in the way the Obama administration did. I think the fundamental problem with climate change in the U.S. political system is that it has gotten wrapped up into the core of our identity politics. And so it's really one of those things where people actually don't know a lot about the issue. And maybe if they took some time to think about it more, they may form a different opinion. But it but it has that sort of political affiliation of being on one side or one tribe versus the other. And I think that the thing that worries me the most about the Trump administration is that it further solidifies climate change's place in the U.S. political consciousness. I think when you go down to like concrete activities, the Trump administration has declared its intent to pull out of the, the um, uh, Paris Agreement. They actually can't do that. Uh, there's a four-year time window on when they can do that. So there's a, a pause, and there's some people wondering whether or not there's a way of convincing them to come back in. I think in some promising ways, um, the administration has tried to re-engage and shape the global climate agenda a little bit to say, hey, you say emissions reductions are your goals. What about nuclear? What about clean coal and carbon capture and sequestration? Things that they um, uh, may be more prone to caring about. On the domestic front, the the irony is that the U.S. is actually the world leader in reducing greenhouse gas emissions. It just happens that a lot of that came from past policies, like what states are doing to encourage renewable energy within their own electric power sectors, but also the switch from coal to natural gas in this country. The thing that you know that is worrying on a, on a policy and regulatory perspective is a lot of the sort of key pillars of the Obama administration climate action plan have been rolled back, both on the mitigation and the adaptation side. In terms of reducing emissions, um, getting rid of and trying to rewrite the clean power plan, which regulated greenhouse gases in the U.S. electric power sector, that's a that's a problem. But what you you find is that um, companies have already taken technological solutions that may lead us to what the Obama administration wanted us to do uh, anyway, or something close to that. Um, the greenhouse gas emissions rules on uh, vehicles uh, through vehicle efficiency standards, they've rolled those back um, to something less ambitious. That, again, is another area um, where, where they're not you know, we won't be making the progress uh, that we were supposed to make unless someone else, other states, autos step up to keep those kinds of trends um, uh, moving more towards more efficient, less polluting cars. 
Um, and then also, you know, things like methane emissions, things that people don't really think very much about, thinking about rolling back the regulation on methane emissions from oil and gas production, all those other sorts of things. I, less noticed is, you know, the Obama administration tried to stand up a lot of initiatives to try and make sure that states and local communities and the federal government were going to adapt to a changing environment, right? The fact that we can't get rid of the climate change that's already locked into the system. There's lots of conversations about how we make sure we better prepare the United States to withhold, you know, withstand some of those impacts. Much of that has been uh, rolled back, and so on both sides of the ledger for this equation, we will be less prepared. And I think um, one of the things that's brought up a lot when we talk about the Trump administration's maybe inaction on this is that the states are leading, and, and California is already brought uh, always brought up. Is that enough? Is state level action? able to do enough to, to mitigate these things? Yeah, I, I think if you look at um, what the U.S. had pledged to do under the Paris uh, Climate Agreement uh, and the fact that even that wasn't enough to really tackle this challenge in, in concert with ev- what everybody else had pledged, that the state's action alone isn't enough. It certainly um, goes a long way to making up the gap, both in U.S. leadership uh, and and concretely in emissions reduction, the thing that makes me um, the most positive about state-level action is there's a certain amount of this challenge that is about reducing emissions now, right? But there's a part of this challenge that's about reinventing our energy system. And that is not just about adding more renewables. It's about figuring out how the electric power system and industry and the transportation sector all provide energy services to the population in an affordable way that is fundamentally less carbon intensive. And that's a big experiment. And California, New York, other places are are working on that experiment. And so I don't see this as a period where the U.S. isn't going to be learning anything. I think there's a, a lot of really important stuff that could lead to some big breakthroughs that help other states figure out how to do this better. Um, but, you know, the, the time really matters in this climate challenge. And so um, the fact that you don't have federal level leadership uh, at this time, it, you know, it, it, that that's the thing that causes people concern. And um, you talked about the companies there for a second. I want to turn to that. You know, you speak to energy industry leaders. We host them here at CSIS all the time. And they're speaking about all different aspects of their industry, of course, but what what sense do you get from them that they're serious about this or that they want to uh, do something about this? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, the what's what's interesting is so there's a lots of different kinds of companies, and there are the Googles and the Microsofts and the Apples of the world, like the big tech companies that are really trying to pioneer new models for creating renewable energy purchasing at scale that they're doing themselves, and that's transforming markets in certain locations. And so they're bought in, right? They kind of get it and they understand sort of the leadership imperative that's there. There are other companies for whom this is a more existential and or an issue that they have to treat a little bit more delicately because on the face of it, they produce you know, fossil fuels, they produce hydrocarbons, the thing that is, you know, we're releasing into the atmosphere that's causing climate change. And it's a really tense environment for them. Not only do they have reports like this coming out, but they're being sued in many different jurisdictions. And so what you find is they are looking for ways to um, to reduce their own emissions, to make meaningful contributions, 
but at the same time, do what they do. And 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 the the hard thing about this conversation and reports like this, it basically shows there's not a lot of time between now and 2050 to change the system. And even if you, as one individual coal company or oil and gas company or whatever the case might be, you think that you'll still be able to produce hydrocarbons or or produce oil or gas or whatever the 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 thing is you produce in that environment, somebody's not going to be able to. And so so it creates this really interesting competitive environment for them um, where they've got to not only think about how do we contribute to this global challenge, but how do we remain competitive relative to our peers as we all try and figure out how to navigate this transition. So for some people, industry isn't doing enough. And for some people, industry is sort of stepping out in ways now where they see, particularly in the United States, a lack of political leadership. They say, we can't identify with that. We can't identify with that lack of leadership on this issue. We have to stay consistent and we have to make you know bigger contributions. I think the big unanswered question is most of the investment around the world going into energy right now is happening with state-owned enterprises, much of it in Asia, much of it with infrastructure and the electric power sector. What are the incentives that drive those governments and companies to make lower carbon decisions? And I think that's something we're just starting to figure out how to influence. Yeah, I want, I want to bring that up. Uh, I, I looked at a report that had the, the top 10 greenhouse gas emitters, industrial, and they account for about 35%. And there's the list here, um, and I'll make a point why it, it's important, is uh, the top of the list is, is Chinese coal, then we have Saudi Aramco, Gazprom, National Iranian Oil, ExxonMobil, Indian Coal, Pemex in Mexico, Russian Coal, Royal Dutch Shell, and the Chinese National Petroleum Corporation. Now, only one of those companies is an American company, and the rest are uh, in the majority of the case, kind of U.S. adversaries. So, I guess the question is, how do we bring those people along, and how do we possibly bring them along when, you know, their incentive is to grow? Especially if you're India, especially if you're China, they the old refrain is, you know, they want to be able to grow the same way that uh, the the great powers uh, ahead of them had grown. You're you're right that. Um the incentives are not the same for all of the different, you know, in- industries and companies that you just listed. I would say, you know, over the last several years, several national oil companies, including a few of the ones on that list, have basically joined in to this conversation. And they've said, we're going to reduce methane emissions. We're going to do carbon capture sequestration. We're going to think about how to transition ourselves to be more competitive in a low-carbon future. But for the cases that you mentioned in China and India in particular, one of the things that I find interesting is in China, they're not necessarily pursuing lower carbon opportunities just because they care about climate change. They're doing it for local air pollution reasons, the Blue Sky Initiative, the idea that they can't be um, um, uh, polluting nearly as much at home for local air pollution reasons. There's a lot of co-benefits with uh, reducing greenhouse gas emissions. And then also, one of the things you th- see through Chinese um, science and technology initiatives as well is they too believe that that the environmental imperatives in the energy system are going to be something that drive their competitiveness. And so they want to sell batteries, they want to sell you know photovoltaics, they want to sell electric vehicles, they want to be the ones who are selling these technologies. And so if they can promote that kind of thing at home, if they can sell those kinds of things abroad, 
They see that as a strategic opportunity. And quite frankly, every other developing country in the world, including India, watches what China has done, and they know that will be what they're competing with. And so India has huge you know, solar targets, huge um, um, battery targets, other kinds of things that they, in turn, hope to drive their own competitiveness. And so I think that companies that operate in that environment are starting to understand that these pressures are their pressures as well. The places where it is the most difficult there are the same that it's the most difficult here. What do you do with a very large state-owned coal company that employs a huge number of people that you otherwise wouldn't be uh, employing? It's the same question we have about coal miners in West Virginia or Pennsylvania or wherever the case might be. And so in those places, it's almost as important for them to be talking about a just transition for those workers to something new as it is what they use to power their, you know, their electricity generation. They can probably find solutions for electricity generation. It's the political economy of their energy system that they've got to be able to sort of figure out. So in our conversations, we see governments and companies really grappling with these issues. I don't think they think the transition is easy or that they will be able to do it any more seamlessly, but they certainly understand it's something they have to pay attention to. Um, finally, I want to end on some sort of an up note. <laughs> uh, one of the things being talked about as a solution and is often talked about as a solution is a carbon tax. What would that achieve and how could it be implemented and, and would it work? Yeah. So I'm going to try not to act like the two-handed economist, so on the one hand and on the other, but it's a carbon tax, so I feel like, and and um, someone just won a Nobel Prize for work on a carbon tax, uh, Bill Nordhaus, so <clears throat> I think it's appropriate. On the one hand, uh, carbon tax would do what needs to be done, which is um, stop allowing the market to pretend that there's not a cost associated with carbon emissions. That's a market failure. It is a breakdown. If you are a free market economist and you want to see that market failure solved for, a carbon tax is clearly the best way to do that. Um, the problem is uh, we don't have a lot of them. They are politically difficult to implement, and it's really hard to make sure that it would be high enough to make a difference, certainly on the order of what the IPCC report says needs to be done. So for everybody out there that advocates for a carbon tax, that has a role in advocating for a carbon tax, um, it needs to be done quickly. It needs to be done very soon so that its impacts can start to be felt. Um, and so it is a great policy solution that people like to go to. I don't like when it's used as a magic wand, right? If only we had this carbon tax solution and then people sort of you know, kind of wash their hands of it when they realize that it's a politically hard thing to achieve. You don't have the choice to either say, we either have a carbon tax or we don't address this problem. This problem will be here regardless of whether or not you put your optimal policies in place. We're having more and more conversations about carbon taxes as, get, as a sign of getting serious about this problem. Uh, I think that that conversation needs to ramp up very, very quickly in order to be an effective solution to this problem. In the meantime, there are a lot of people who are working on what might be considered suboptimal policies uh, so that time isn't wasted towards finding a solution for this problem. And that was CSIS's Energy Program Director, Sarah Ladislaw. We've reached the end of this week's show, so all that's left to say is if you'd like to reach out about anything show-related, you can find me on Twitter or via email, cquinn at csis.org. That's it for me. Until next week, I'm Colin Quinn. Thanks for listening.